Dale Hahn once encouraged his son Corey at his t-ball and little league games and Dale continued to cheer Corey on all the way through high school. Um, you know, often he played catch in the driveway, he'd work on Corey's swing, and all that dedication paid off because during his senior year at Santa Ana Mater Dei High School, Corey received California's Distinguished Mr. Baseball Award. He was offered a $300,000 a year salary to join the San Diego Padres, but he passed that by in order to hone his skills at Arizona State University on a full-ride scholarship. And just like those early t-ball games, his dad was still his biggest fan and his most devoted coach. But Corey's future plans changed drastically during his third game at Arizona State. He was sliding into second base when he broke his neck. And today he's a C5 quadriplegic, paralyzed from the chest down. He has limited use of his hands and arms. But the kid who once led his team to a high school championship by pitching five perfect innings, making an over-the-shoulder catch and hitting a long home run, now battles to try to eat a hamburger or to wash his hair, or to wheel his wheelchair to class. Corey says, my goals don't take days anymore. They take weeks or they take months. But as, as always, Corey is able to stretch toward those goals from the broad shoulders of the guy he calls Pops. He says, there were times I would wonder what's better. Would it be better to be dead or to be like this? He says, but then I look up and I see my dad, and I think if he can do it, then I can do it. And Corey moved back to Arizona State to continue his studies. Dale moved into an extended stay hotel down the street. Together, they get Corey ready for his daily classes. Each day brings a little more independence, hard won for Corey. And they celebrated that Corey was able now to use his once lifeless hands to wash his own hair. Corey's also able to feed himself, but only after countless weeks of practicing with his dad, he says, it was really messy, but we did it. Together, they drive to campus in Dale's truck, where they go from a street parking spot to Corey's first class, with Corey wheeling himself most of the way. Dale says, I see all these college kids running and skating across campus, and then I see Corey just chugging along in his chair, the world moving past him, and I'm so, so proud of my son. Corey says, we live for little victories for a team. After lunch, they go to a gym for therapy, and then his father might drop him off at a Sun Devils baseball practice or a game before taking him home for the night. Corey will hang out with friends until 11 p.m., at which point his dad returns to his room to lay him into bed and to put the television on a timer and slip out with a simple... Good night, buddy. Dale says, when you're a dad, you're a dad forever. Corey was facing an impossible future. Having seen all of his dreams, everything he had and was and dreamed to be, go up and smoke in, in an instant at a second base. He had lost everything, and his dad gave him everything he had to encourage him and to help him press forward in what will only amount to a challenging life. 
Dale was a good dad. He was a very good dad. And if you know Jesus, that should sound familiar to you. A father who would give up everything to take care of his kids. A God who can see us in our most helpless situation, our future devastated before us in absolute paralysis and give up everything to encourage us to press on in seeking him. It's what those early recipients of the letter to the Hebrews knew well, that impossible future where they'd been rejected by their family, they'd been kicked out of their synagogues, they'd probably lost homes and, and loved ones, and, and, and they experienced persecution from their own fellow Jewish people because they were following Jesus, and they knew all they had to do was walk away from Jesus and go back, and they would be embraced, and they would have an easier life. And yet we also see a father who gave up everything in order to make sure that they and us can persevere, can press on, and encourage one another in love and good deeds. This is Hebrews. We're actually looking at a theme that runs throughout the book. So we'll be looking at chapter 3, verse 13. Then we're going to jump to chapter 10 and start in verse 24. Then we're going to go to chapter 13 and pick up in verse 17 because this is a, a thread that is woven throughout this letter again and again and again repeated about encouraging one another as we see the day approaching. This is the word of God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And this, I'm following a literal translation of the Greek, not the New International Version at this point. Have confidence in those who lead you and be yielded to them. They watch over your souls as those who are about to give an account so that they may do so with joy, not a burden, for that would be unprofitable to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way, I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written you only a short letter. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I'll come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all God's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you. What do we see here? We see Jesus saying, I want you to prioritize encouraging and building up my church. Saying, I want you to think about how you can encourage one another. We read, encourage one another daily so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We read, and let us consider how we may spur one another on 
toward love and good deeds, encouraging one another, spurring one another on toward sacrificial giving to God, you know, self-giving love to his people, zeal for his mission, how you can spur one another on in love and good works. What does it look like to encourage your spiritual siblings in faith and love and good works? What does it look like to spur one another on what does it look like to encourage? It can look like a hundred different things. And depending on how you're wired and who you're in relationship with, it might mean any of a number of things. It may be pointing out how you see God working in their lives, because often we can't see God working in our own lives. I remember once, you know, I was an argumentative young Christian who had a million opinions about everything and, and always got the last word. And I remember years ago just going through some horrible abuse and sitting there and taking it and a long, one of my oldest friends pulled me aside and said, Greg, you never could have done that ten years ago. Uh, I couldn't see it. But she could see it. Encouraging one another. Spurring one another on. Pointing out how you see God at work in their life. Praising them when you see them take the harder Christ-like path rather than the easy, sinful path. Texting them a prayer or a promise from God. Leaving a note for your spouse or your kids or your parents or your grandparents. Reminding them of your love and of God's love for them. Kids, have you ever written a note to mom or to grandma or grandpa or dad? Telling them how excited you are to see Jesus working in their lives. And how happy you are to see them walking with Jesus. It's an opportunity we have. Just because you're young doesn't mean you don't have a role too in spurring one another on, encouraging one another. Sometimes it just means telling people that you already love that you actually love them. Spending time with somebody. Finding ways to help them with their needs, with their challenges. Raking their leaves in the autumn, it's coming. You know, watering their plants in the summer. Walking their dog in the winter, praying with them. And if they are at a point where spiritually they just can't pray, going over to their house and praying for them since they can't do it themselves. We all get there at some point, and we need each other to encourage us, to spur us on. Point out to them how Jesus loves them. When you see them under attack, stand up and stand in their corner and you take the abuse with them so that they know that they are not alone and that voice that tells them that God hates them will be silenced and shut up forever because they have their siblings in Jesus willingly, purposely suffering with them and doing it on purpose because God loves them. You know, being patient when somebody's struggling and when they fail, picking them up where they fall. You know, reminding them that the gospel is for you too. Because every single one of us has a voice in our head that the Bible calls the deceiver that says the gospel of Jesus Christ and his salvation and love is true for everybody except you. And all of us think we're the only one. And we need each other to shut out the lies and to speak the truth. You know, it means, encouraging means saying thank you. It means offering a pat on the back or on the shoulder, asking them if they want or need a hug, listening to them, not to offer advice, but listening in order to listen. It's like a crazy Christian concept. Ask good questions when they're trying to process things. Ask them when they're suffering, where do you see Jesus in all of this? Because often all we can see is the pain, and we need our siblings to help us ask that question, God, where are you in this? Inviting them over 
for dinner or a drink or coffee, asking them where they've been feeling anxiety and asking if you can pray for them in precisely that spot, telling them that you appreciate them. When you see a couple that doesn't have trusted family nearby offering to watch their kids or to pay for a sitter so that they can have a date night can encourage them and help build up their marriage, being quick to listen, slow to speak, asking them about their story, about their life, asking anybody, you can ask anybody, where are you with God? And if you're open-ended and humble and don't have a million opinions to share with them, it actually could be an encouraging conversation that is not threatening uh, just to ask them where you are with that. Helping them see where their needs are. Some of you are trained to scan a room and you can spot who it is that's holding back, who it is that feels shut down, who it is that's suffering or wounded. And you can spot that. Others of you need to learn from them how to scan a room and see who here needs loving this morning asking them what kind of person they want to be in five years and listening as they process that and asking them questions and asking if you can pray for them, speaking words of blessing over them, telling them you, you value them by putting your phone aside when you're in a conversation, pointing out the gifts you see in them, the abilities and passions that God has placed in their heart and brainstorming with them how God might use that for his mission upon the earth following up on a good conversation, circling back to let them know it was good talking, and always bringing up the means of grace, bringing prayer, bringing scripture, bringing Bible study into things because these are the highways of the Holy Spirit and we want to open the door for his working in their life. Let us encourage one another daily. Let us spur one another, spur one another on toward love and good deeds. See, the goal is to help the church family become the family that we all need to receive encouragement continually from one another, not just from that guy up front, but all of you ministering the gospel to one another, encouraging one another, circling back to one another, asking good questions of one another. Let us encourage one another daily and spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Jesus is saying, I want you to prioritize encouraging and building up my church because it's my family and I'm placing you in it, not just to receive love, but to give it. That does mean being intentional in worship and in relationships in Christ. You, can, you can't become a, a, an encouraging part of the family of God if you're not physically together. That's why he says, let us not give up meeting together, but let us instead encourage one another. You see, they're tied. You can't encourage somebody that you're not in regular contact with. If you're not there, if you come to church once a month, you can learn stuff once a month, but you're not going to be living in community with people unless you're always there, and you're always at community group, and you're developing relationships outside of that, and sometimes you think, my life is way too busy. Cut some stuff out. You know, Americans are the most busy people on the planet, and we're the most relationally starved. And that tells you everything you need to know. Slow down. Prioritize people, relationships, God, his family. It's so liberating once you do that. I thought I would die from that, and when I first experienced it, I came alive and didn't realize that it was before that I was dead. And this means being intentional. The Greek term to meet together, 
is, is episodagogain, to where we get the term synagogue from. It's not just hanging out. It's coming together to worship God together and to be the family of God together, doing life together by his grace with the gospel. And it's not just your local church that he's talking about. He's talking about your global church, because if you know Jesus, you are a part of something that is a whole lot bigger than these four walls. Uh, you know, did you notice how he's updating them on the fact that their missionary, Timothy, has been released from prison? And, and if he comes, I'll bring him to see you. And he's saying, oh, greet all your reader, leaders and all God's people, and those from Italy send their greetings. You know, this is this is experiencing church not just as a private congregation that's here to be a great church, but as part of a global mission of God to bring the welcome of Jesus to all the earth. Jesus is saying, I want you to prioritize this, my church, encouraging it, building it up. And to help fuel this, we see a radical new vision for leadership in that church. See, the Old Testament pattern had been that there were individual leaders who acted with direct authority from God. You had individual kings directing with direct authority from God leading the people. You had individual prophets with a direct line from God leading the people and speaking the word of God. You had the high priest acting with direct authority from God to enter the holy place. And there were, it, later on you see groups of elders developing in local synagogues, but that was later. In the New Testament, we always see a vision of shared accountable leadership. It's never one individual leader who's the boss. It's never about everybody submitting to the boss. That's, that's totally foreign in the New Testament. Uh, notice how leadership is always shared after the coming of Christ. We, write, we read here, have confidence in those who lead you. He's talking to a specific church, and those is plural, because there's not have confidence in your leader, this isn't, take me to your leader, earthling. No, it's take me to your leaders, because it's always a group. It's always plural. There were 12 apostles, not one. When the early Christians chose deacons, there were six of them, not one. There were multiple leaders, multiple elders appointed in every church that Paul and Timothy planted. The New Testament norm is that leadership is always shared by a group of people who walk humbly by faith in Jesus and who have maturity in following him and who are therefore respected by the followers of Jesus. We read this, have confidence in those who lead you and be yielded to them. They keep watch over your souls as those who are about to give account, meaning this life's really short. I'm going to be dead soon and I'm going to have to give account. Um, I take issue with how this passage is usually translated. Um, my favorite translation is still the 1984 New International Version. Does anybody else still love the 1984 New International Version? It's the one before they messed it up. Well, they messed it up and then they improved it, depending on which passages you're looking at. But, but you know, it's the one, it was granted, it was my first Bible as a new Christian in 1990. Uh, so it's sort of like folks who grew up with King James, it's the only version. Um, I'm up. 1984 NIV only kind of guy, but, um, but it totally botches this passage <laughs> in its translation um, because what it says is it says, you know, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. The only problem is in the Greek, there's no word for obey or submit or authority in this passage. They're, they're trying to give the gist of what it would mean by implication, but because of that, it misses what God's actually telling us because what he's telling us is not that the basic relationship between a Christian 
and those that they trust to lead them is that the leaders have authority and their job is to obey because it's basically an authority submission relationship. That's not what the picture is here. Um, and these words today, in light of church abuse scandals, really particularly make us cringe because we see how submission, obedience, authority have been misused uh, in order to abuse, in order to harm. It's part of why in the New Testament there's never a leader but always a group of them because when there's a group of you and you're all accountable, the potential for abuse goes down, not up. Uh, he doesn't say obey your leaders. He says have confidence in those who lead you. And I can hope you can hear the subtle emphasis that is different. If you do have confidence in your leader, you are more likely to follow them and therefore more likely to obey when they tell you don't do this, do that. But the focus isn't on the obedience. It's on the heart attitude of having confidence in those who are leading you. It's a different emphasis. Um, nor does he talk here about submitting to authority. Those are not, the authority is not actually mentioned here. Uh, and the term translated to submit actually means to yield. And yielding to the judgment of somebody you trust is a little more than obeying somebody just because they have authority. I fear that we've taken something that's incredibly beautiful, this idea that I would voluntarily choose to yield to somebody because I trust them and I trust their character and I see their godliness and their wisdom and their experience and so I, I have confidence in them so therefore I choose willingly to yield and to translate that as something that's saying obey them and submit to their authority. You know, I, I hear, I'm dating myself, but I hear a very old 1970s Dalek in a Doctor Who episode. Obey! 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 And I just like, that's not what he's saying. Don't ruin it. It's something beautiful. It's like that bride at the altar when she's madly in love with this guy and she sees Jesus in him and, and, and she says, you know, I will follow you all my life. And it's absolutely sincere and it's freely given and it's beautiful because she trusts him and loves him. And that's the focus. Not obey but have confidence in and yield because you have confidence in them because it's something beautiful. Have confidence in those who lead you. Be yielded to them. They keep watch over your souls. Dennis McCallum writes, Obedience to leaders here is never uncontingent or unconditional. We should only follow leaders to the extent that they are following Jesus. Now, granted, there is an apologetic point here about how in the New Testament there are always multiple leaders. And the same thing whenever somebody, whenever Paul sends money, it's always, I'm sending you this person and this person and this, this person with some money because you can't trust one person with money. Not even godly Christians. You can't trust two people. Three, yeah, that, that you could trust. Because our sin nature is so powerful because we were made good in the image of God, but that image is shattered and broken. And even though Jesus is restoring that image in us who are following him, renewing the, the likeness of Christ in us, nevertheless, there's still shattered spots everywhere. And so because of that, we all need to be accountable. Not being accountable is a recipe for disaster, for pride going before a fall. And so you see here this beautiful vision of this new community, the church, and all of us choosing to prioritize and build up and encourage one another as the family of God, and God raising up among us leaders, and leaders 
who are followed precisely because people have confidence in them as they exhort us. Pray for us, Paul writes. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. You know, that is a character issue that those who travel with him would have known whether it's real or not. And he can therefore say, I urge you to bear with my word of or exhortation. You know, our proper confidence in Christian leaders depends upon their Christian character, upon their godliness, upon their humility. You know, I've told many a, a, a pastoral search team in churches through the years that if you look for a really gifted person, you're going to get a great preacher. But if you look for a humble person, you're going to get Jesus. In his book, Immeasurable, Sky Jathani contrasts two different leaders, one which had capacity, the other had character. He writes, compare two leaders. Leader A lifted up an entire nation in a time of despair. He mobilized his people against unimaginable odds with a clear vision and inspiring passion. He launched a movement that has impacted literally everyone alive today. He set in motion an industrial and scientific revolution that produced the first computer, the first jet airplane, and began human exploration of space. He unlocked the mystery of nuclear energy. Almost every aspect of the modern world has, in one way or another, been influenced by this leader. By the time he died at the age of only 56, everyone on the planet knew his name, and without a doubt, Leader A changed the world. He writes, Leader B lived during the same era. In fact, he died just 21 days before Leader A, but his life was very different. At the height of his influence, Leader B ran a school with just 100 students. He wrote a few books, but was not widely regarded. He was beloved by his friends and family, and he had a reputation for being both intelligent and faithful. But at the time of his death, almost no one knew his name. And most considered his life's work unfulfilled, including Leader B himself. So given the choice... Which leader's strategies would you rather study? Which leadership conference would you rather attend? The one featuring a keynote address by Leader A who changed the world, or the one by the, or the small workshop in the back hall led by Leader B, who was faithful but unknown? If you're inspired by the world-changing effectiveness of Leader A, congratulations, you have chosen Adolf Hitler. Leader B was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who was executed by the Nazis for his relentless faith-based opposition to Nazism. Biblical leadership is not about authority. It's not about power. It's not about obedience and submission. Those are always required toward God. But toward other people, it's about willingly yielding to people who have a godly character that love Jesus and are following Jesus, and you want to follow Jesus too. We see here this radical vision for leadership based on groups of accountable leaders who lead out of trust 
and respect that they've developed based upon their own Christian walk and love and perseverance. Christians yield to such leaders because they see in them people leading them to Jesus. Jesus is saying, I want you to prioritize building up each other encouraging one another and spurring one another on in love and good deeds. I want you to prioritize my church, not just here, but globally. And to help you with that, I will raise up leaders among you who have godly character and who will follow Jesus so that you can follow them, as Paul writes, as they follow Christ. How is it possible to prioritize building up other people means we have to deprioritize building up ourselves to some degree. And to follow anybody means not making all our own decisions independently, but doing that in community. And that carries a cost. So how is it possible? It's possible, friends, because God has entered into relationship with us through Jesus. We read here about the God of peace and the blood of the eternal covenant that sent Christ to die and ensured his resurrection and triumph. And there's a shared family relationship we have with God. Whenever he says, brothers, I urge you, um, he's not being sexist because brothers in antiquity had rights and inheritance that daughters did not have. And so he knows he's speaking to men and women and children alike, and he's calling all of them brothers because all of you have the same inheritance as equal children of God. It's not a sexist thing. He's actually elevating, not lowering. But when he says, brothers, I urge you, he's using family language because we are not born children of God. The Bible says that it's to those who believe in Jesus that God gives the right to become children of God. We're all his creatures. But you only become a son or a daughter, and therefore a brother with an inheritance by believing in Jesus. This is something that's true of us. And so he's pointing us here by calling us brothers to the fatherhood of God over us through which we therefore all become siblings with obligations to love one another. And until your heart can melt before the beauty and the compassion of Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, you're going to be fixated on yourself, on your own sin, on your faith, on your needs, and it's all, even spiritualized, going to be you, you, and you. But in a relationship, it's all about the other person. Do you have a relationship with Jesus that's all about him, all about his goodness to you, all about his love for you, and are you therefore able to open up your life and give of yourself to him, your, your burdens and joys alike? to him knowing that he loves you and he sees you and from his side of the relationship it's all about you and loving you and delighting over you and ensuring that you are brought to good pasture where you will flourish we're talking about a covenant relationship with god the blood of the eternal covenant a covenant relationship involves mutual belonging the, the way the bible talks about it is it talks about this covenant relationship in which we belong to god and god belongs to us and he's our god and we're his people and the possession goes both directions and the bible talks about it and compares it to a marriage where we as the church are the bride of christ the betrothed of christ belonging to him and he belongs to us as our savior and big brother and friend and spouse the Bible, Jesus, we read earlier from John's gospel about, he talked about this covenant relationship, this bound relationship. As a vine and its branches, he said, you know, I'm the vine, you're the branches, meaning you get your life from me. 
Your life flows out of Jesus. It's your future. You're in a permanent relationship with him in which you have been grafted into him and therefore have life. This is all about a relationship with God as our dad, us in covenant with our triune God. And within this relationship, God is continually giving you resurrection power. May the God of peace, who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, equip you with everything good for doing his will. Do you hear that? If, if God himself had the resurrection power to take Jesus, stone-cold corpse, bring him back to life, defeat death, conquer hell, and translate him into the permanent state of glory. And that God tells you, I want you to pour yourself into encouraging and building up the church. Then he has the power to equip you, to equip you with everything good for doing his will. That's his promise to you. It's a relationship in which he has given you power, and it's a relationship in which Jesus is going to return to make everything right. He says the day is approaching when there will be no more tears and no more suffering and no more sickness and no more death. God himself will wipe every tear from your eyes and make everything new. What the book of Revelation calls the healing of all the nations as they come to walk with Jesus into his glorious city. Jesus is saying, I want you to prioritize the church and take this radical new leadership model and run with it. Together, he's saying, you can do this because God has the power, the resurrection power that he's pouring out upon you as the day approaches. He writes, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. A 2009 article in the Chicago Tribune told the story of, of Betty Tucker, She's a Christian lady who's a cook and works the night shift or worked the night shift at Children's Memorial Hospital in Chicago. And, and she'd been doing her job for 43 years, 28 years on the night shift. She saw a steady stream of parents in her job. It was a children's hospital. Many of them were frightened. Many of them were weary. On one particular night around the time the article was written, Miss Betty, as everybody who knows her speaks of her, uh, you know, Miss Betty served food to a mother whose three-year-old fell out of a second-story window that morning. Another mother whose 17-year-old was battling a rare form of leukemia. And a third mother whose 18-year-old had endured seven hours of brain surgery. Their stories break the heart of Miss Betty, and as one coworker interviewed for the article says, that's why she feeds every last one of them as if they'd walked right into her kitchen on her south side brick bungalow where she lives. A member of the hospital's housekeeping crew adds this about her. You need someone to bring you life, and she brings it in the middle of the night. We have a photograph of Miss Betty here. Uh, a picture of Miss Betty accompanied the article, and it showed this woman with this beautiful smile, and it's hard to imagine how much that smile would mean to a suffering parent in the middle of the night. She says, when I ask, how you doing today? and they say it's not a good day, I say don't lose hope. When the nurses tell me it's a bad night, I say 
I understand it's a bad night, but guess what? I'm, I'm here for you, and I'm going to get you through the, the night. Another picture shows her sitting down, head bowed over a meal. She says, I'm a praying lady. I pray every night for every room and every person in our entire hospital. She says, I start, it was a lot of time alone. She says, I start with the basement and I go up floor by floor and then room by room. I pray for the children. I pray for the families. I pray for the nurses. I pray for the doctors. I say every night while I'm driving in on the expressway, oh Lord, I don't know what I'll face tonight, but I pray you'll guide me through it. The reporter behind the article, Barbara Mahaney, offers these words about Miss Betty. Just might be that divine helping on the side is the most essential item on Miss Betty's menu. The one she stirs in every broth, in every whisper, the ingredient that makes her the perpetual light shining in that all-night-long kitchen. A woman given to encouraging others and building them up because she loves Jesus and she knows in Jesus she has the resurrection power of God at her will in accordance with the will of Christ whenever she turns to him and prays. Let's pray.